to benefit in any way. If sinners are to be saved and if the saints of God, God are to be sanctified, we know, Lord, that we can do nothing of that by ourselves. And so we know that it is not by might or by power, but by your Spirit that anything good will be done. So we acknowledge this and we plead with you then that you'll bless our time together and bless every, every aspect of this worship for the saving of souls and for the sanctifying and stirring of your people and above all for the glory of your name. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before the message, we'll turn to number 203. Number 203 in our hymn books. O Christ, our hope and our heart's desire. Two of three. It's 
hard to imagine a more wonderful statement. It's hard to imagine a more welcome statement. And uh, this is the word from the cross that we want to think about today as we prepare our hearts to remember the Lord in his death in the way that he has ordained. I want to offer to you ten descriptors, uh, ten adjectives or adverbs that I trust will help us in some measure to uh, try and plumb the depths of this wondrous, and it is a wondrous statement. So what can we say about this word from the cross, this second statement of Jesus? The first thing we can say is that it's a prophesied word. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 12 that it was said of Jesus that he would be numbered among the transgressors. That is, the coming Messiah would be killed and he would be killed in the company of felons. And so it doesn't come to us as a surprise then that we find the Lord Jesus here speaking to criminals. The first thing that we learn then is that God is in control. That's the first thing we can learn from this text and this statement. That God is in control. And what happened here was happening according to the plan of God. It was happening just as God said it would. Jesus would die amongst criminals. He would be numbered amongst transgressors. He would have occasion then to talk to felons even as he was dying. The Lord, of course, as you well know, controls everything. It seems sometimes in our lives as if things are out of control, but that's only appearance. We know the reality and we see the world with eyes of faith, and we know that the Lord controls everything. And here we are witnessing the most horrendous moment in human history. And this is the most horrendous moment in human history. It's not the kinds of things we saw in the 20th century. It's not the Holocaust. It's not one of the many genocides that took place in the 20th century. None of those are the most horrific criminal activities that the world has ever seen. No, it's this. It's the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. It's the putting to death of Jesus. That's the most horrific crime in all of human history. And yet, even at that point, God is in control. Again and again in the scriptures, in particular in the Gospels, when you read the Gospel accounts of the crucifixion, repeatedly you read, and the scripture was fulfilled. And this happens so that the scripture might be fulfilled. What it's really saying is that this happened according to the plan of God. This happened according to the purpose of God as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. God said, this is the way it would be, and this is precisely what happened. So God is in control. What we're seeing then is that such was God's love for you. You're a Christian now, we're talking about you. Such was God's love for you that he planned what was, at least in part, the greatest crime in history. 
And he did that so that he might effect your salvation. You can read in Luke eleven forty nine to 51 that the Lord Jesus says time and again in the Old Testament history, God sent prophets. And God would send a prophet and they would kill him. And God would send a prophet, another one, and they would kill him. And God would send another prophet and they would kill him. And Jerusalem is the place that kills the prophets. And then finally he sends his son and they kill him. And my point is that what God is doing is he's sending prophets in order that you might be saved. In order to predict what would be. In order to prophesy about the coming of Messiah. Then he sends the Messiah himself and the Messiah himself is killed. And all of that, all of that blood was shed in order to prophesy the event where blood would be shed for your salvation. And all of this, this great plan, this tremendous purpose, this grand design of God, and all the suffering that was involved is for you, is for me. It's because God loves us. So this was a prophesied word. It was secondly a necessary word. This man needed to hear this. He needed help from the Lord Jesus. He needed help because he was dying. We all need help when we come to die. Death is a fearful thing. Death is a frightening moment. And I know that in our day, we try to dress it up. I shouldn't say we, the world does. And when they go to funerals nowadays, it's a celebration of life. They try to gloss over everything and make it, uh, you know, death is something normal. Death is a part of the circle of life we hear from Disney. But it's not. It's an intruder. It's an enemy. It's unnatural and it's perverse. And it's only a reality because of the fall. Death is an enemy. And uh, when they're honest, brave men get weak when they come face to face with death. Shakespeare writes, to die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil. That's the whole to be or not to be, to not to be or not to be debate question that Hamlet's wrestling with. He, he wants to die because life is tough. But he's scared to die because he doesn't know what's coming. What comes may be worse than what is. And we know from the scriptures that yes, what comes is worse than what is if you're not a believer. After death comes judgment. And if you're not a Christian, you have reason to be terrified of death. Because death will then usher you into the presence of the God who will judge you. And if you stand before your judge without Christ, you're in a desperate way. Thomas Watson said, <clears throat> If a wicked man seems to have peace at death, it is not from the knowledge of his happiness, but from the ignorance of his danger. I've seen people who 
feel that they can laugh in the face of death. And some who have drifted into the next world thinking that they're fine, but they're not. Now there's a reason to be afraid, you see. And this man, oh, he needed help because he was dying. And he needed help, as I said, because after death comes judgment. That's what Hebrews 9.27 says. And this man knew he was in trouble. After death comes judgment, the writer of Hebrews says. And this man understood that. And here he is, and he's dying as a result of his criminal activity. He knows that he was dying because he was justly condemned. But he knows that there's more than a human tribunal to deal with. He knows that there's heavenly justice that comes after death. And so he says, don't you fear God? You know, we're being judged and we're suffering the just condemnation of our deeds. But this man's done nothing wrong, but you and I, we ought to fear God. Because there are those who can kill the body, but there is one who can kill both body and soul in hell. We have reason to be, to be afraid, he says. So it is. When I was younger and before I was a Christian, I was a professing atheist. And I say professing because no one's genuinely deep down in their hearts an atheist. Everybody knows there is a God. <clears throat> Atheists know deep down that there is a God. Romans chapter 1 makes that very, very clear. And when I was talking with great boldness and brashness about the fact that there is no God, during the daytime, at nighttime, I was praying for that moment when I would die, and I knew I would have to face God. So what I did, in order to be safe, I clung to what the Catholics had told me. And I used to pray this. Many a night used to pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Of course, we said that, I said that really fast. And you say it ten times because the Catholics told me you say that every night and you throw in a couple of, hey, our fathers and you'll be okay. And I thought to myself, you have been a wretch during the day. You better pray this Hail Mary over and over again and hope that she will help you. But she can't help you. She's a sinner. Not now, but she was. And she prayed, we read about this in the Gospel, to God her Savior. She can't help us. She can't save us. No, the Lord Jesus. He alone can save. He's the only one who can help. He's the only one who can rescue. And so this man, he needed to hear a word from this Jesus. Because he was dying and he was facing judgment. And you see, if you're not a Christian, you are in precisely the same situation as that man. Now your death may be closer to you than his was to him. You may die in the next minute. 
I'm not being melodramatic. It's a fact. You might not make the end of this service. You need this kind of word from Jesus. You need the Lord Jesus to rescue you. You need to be saved. Maybe you're sitting at home in, a, in an easy chair. And you think all is fine. All is well with the world. The sun's shining. The sky's blue. And I'm worshiping God here, I think. But you may be a stranger to grace. And your sin condemns you. And were you to die, you'd go right to hell. You need to make sure you're a Christian today. This is a needed word. Thirdly, it's a decisive word. It's a decisive word. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now there are decisive points in your life. Maybe it's the, the first moment you vote. Maybe it's a, you think the first time you buy a car. Maybe it's when you meet the love of your life. Maybe it's when you got married. Maybe it's when you get the job that you've been at. All kinds of, you think, decisive moments. But this moment, what a moment for this man. At this moment, everything changes. His race is changed. His race is changed. That is, he's not part of the old Adamic race anymore. Now he's part of the new race. Headed by the last Adam. He's part of a new humanity, a new people. So his race changed, and his destiny changed. His destiny changed. He, up till that point, going straight to hell. From that point on, going straight to heaven. How extraordinary. And then his citizenship changed. He was... Uh, citizen of the nation of Israel. Who knows? Perhaps he was even a citizen of Rome. We don't know. But what we know is this, that Paul tells us that when you become a Christian, your citizenship changes. Colossians 1.13 says he was, that is the person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, was translated. That is, he was taken from here and put over here. He was translated from the domain of darkness, the realm of evil, and he was translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. He's taken from this, this realm where the devil reigns. And where sin is conquer, conqueror over all. Into a different realm. Serving a different king. Citizen of a different kingdom. Now he serves the Lord Jesus. And now he's part of the kingdom of God. There's a radical decisive, life-altering transition and change for this man. And this is what happens to you. Look, if, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, let's say now, for the next few moments, you just tune me out. And you begin to pray to the Lord Jesus. And you begin to ask Him to save you. You acknowledge your sin and you say... I have sinned against you every day of my life and every moment of each day. And I have sinned against you in ways I can't even imagine. And I am guilty. I can't blame my parents. 
I can't blame my upbringing. I can't blame society. I accept full responsibility and I would be righteously condemned if I went straight to hell. I acknowledge my sin and I cast myself entirely upon you. I'm just pleading with Jesus to forgive me. Not on the basis of any work I've done. I'm not going to plead that I, you know, I've come to church pretty frequently over the last year or so. No, no, that's not going to help you. And you acknowledge that and you say, Lord, save me by your grace. Save me because you died on the cross. Forgive me and cleanse me and cover me with your righteousness that I have any righteousness of my own. Let's say you start praying that. See, then the Lord Jesus forgives. And then this radical transformation takes place. This life-altering moment occurs. And you then, you're part of a new race. And you're someone whose destiny is, is completely changed. And you're someone whose citizenship, uh, now your citizenship is in the kingdom of Jesus. See, this was a decisive word. When, when he heard that, everything changed. That's a gracious word too, fourthly. It's a gracious word. Today, you will be with me in paradise. You. <laughs> of all people, you. You're a man who's been condemned by the world. The world's looked at you. The Roman Empire has considered your situation and they've condemned you to death. That's how bad you are. And he knows how bad he is. He says, we're dying justly. We're justly condemned. He accepts his responsibility. He knows how bad he is. We don't know what he did, this man. They call him a thief. It's probably something more like a, uh, maybe even some kind of terrorist. We don't know precisely what he did, but he knew. And he, he knew that this condemnation was just, just. And what he knew is that he needed grace. He doesn't plead anything with Jesus. He doesn't say, you know, if you can help me, maybe even get me off here. I'll begin to live a certain way. He doesn't say, look, I know I'm being condemned here, but I mean, when I, when I think back, maybe, maybe on the whole, I've been, I've been pretty good. I had a bad patch that led to this, but before, like there's no pleading like that at all. He just says, remember me. He just casts himself upon mercy and grace. So we understand what Paul would later write about, that the wages of sin is death. You're justly condemned. You'll be justly condemned, not just before a human tribunal, but in the courts of heaven. You see, if you're saved, it's a gift. And you deserve hell. I wonder if you think you deserve hell. And I know we did at the point of conversion, but I wonder if you still think today that by myself and left to myself, I deserve hell. I wonder if you ponder that sometimes. 
I know for myself, sometimes when I feel myself to be mistreated by others, I think, I want justice. I want things to be set right. But then, if I happen to become more lucid, I begin to think, no, no, the whole story of my life is that I want mercy. Is that I need mercy. I need grace. If I get justice, I go straight to heaven. I need mercy. I want mercy. I need grace. And every day of my life, I need grace. And this man, he was dealt with graciously. I mean, think about this. He's dying next to Jesus. He's dying within earshot of Jesus. Imagine if he had died on any other hill. On any other day. In any other year. Far away from Jesus. But lo and behold. Here he is. He's on Golgotha. A place where grace is found. Where mercy is available. From the one crucified just adjacent to him. How extraordinary. How amazing. How undeserved. How gracious. And then it's a qualified word. This is number five. It's a qualified word because Jesus says, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay. All kinds of unqualified people make pronouncements about eternal destiny. I heard a man say one time, I just know God's going to save your father. I just know that. It was public, so I couldn't say it, but in my head I'm saying, you don't? You don't know that at all? You can't say that. It's irresponsible of you to say that. You can't say that. You're not qualified to say that. I know you want to comfort me with that, but you can't say that. But Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you see, no one else is qualified to say things like that. But Jesus is. He's qualified for a variety of reasons. He's qualified because he's Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus means God saves, Yahweh saves. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, he's Jesus. He, he saves his people from their sins. And so he can say things like this. He can make declarations like this. He can explain your destiny to you. You're going to be with me in paradise. They say that categorically. Without fear of contradiction, because, because he's Jesus. He can say it because he's sinless. This man knew that there was no charge against Jesus that was in any way valid. This man's done nothing wrong, but he didn't even know the half of what he was saying. Because God says Jesus is sinless. God says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. 
And so Jesus lived a human life before God and before the piercing eye of the holy God and the holy judge and the almighty of the universe. And he lived a perfectly holy life. He fulfilled every jot and tittle of God's law. He was absolutely spotless. And so he was worthy to be our substitute. He was the spotless lamb of God. And so he can say, you know, he can say, you're going to be with me in heaven because I'm about to pay the price for your salvation. I'm, you know, the darkness is about to come and God's about to turn his face away from me and I'm doing it for you. So I can say, you'll be with me in paradise because I'm paying for your sins. And he can say this because he would die. He's come to die. He, Philippians 2, he humbled himself to the point of death and consequently he has the keys of life and death. Consequently, he's the door into glory. And so he can say this. He's qualified. It's a troubled world we live in. It's hard to look around, isn't it? It's hard to look around and gaze upon the suffering and the sadness that we see everywhere in the world we live in. But we know the one who is qualified to say, you will be with me in paradise. And we have the privilege of going and telling other people all about this, all about him, about Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. So this word, it's a qualified word. He's the qualified speaker. Number six, it's a glorious word. It's a glorious word. This poor man, he says, remember me. He comes, you see, to Jesus. Metaphorically, he's coming. He comes humble. He's not parading his righteousness, for he has none. He comes hopeful. He's hoping because there's no firm expectation in his mind. He comes penitent because he knows he's a sinner. And he says, he says, remember me. When you come in your kingdom, please remember me. I wonder what he was expecting. I wonder if, if he had the, the time and, and the clarity to think about particulars. Don't know. But you look at what he got. I mean, he, he says, remember me. It's the most basic of requests. He's just entirely casting himself upon the mercy of Jesus. He's not making demands by any stretch. He's not even pleading other than to say, please, just remember me. What does he get? Well, notice, you'll be with me. That's what he gets. You'll be with me. And wherever Jesus is, it's heaven, isn't it? And maybe this man, maybe he knows the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Maybe he knows the Psalms. Maybe he remembers Psalm 16, verse 11. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. 
And so then he hears Jesus say, you'll be with me. And his heart leaps because he knows in your presence, I mean, if I'm with him, there's fullness of joy. If I'm with him, there are pleasures at his right hand. So that's what he gets. He gets, he says, remember me. And he gets, you'll be with me. But he gets something else. He's told, you'll be with me in paradise. In paradise. Now the word paradise is literally a pleasure park. A pleasure park. Now when we talk to Muslims and when we listen to Muslims and when we read what Muslims write about heaven, uh, we're disturbed and we're troubled by the way they describe heaven and the way they describe paradise. Because it is, a, it is, all, it is filled with all kinds of earthly and earthy and carnal delights. It's just terrible. It's quite wicked. And for them to speak of that as what God grants to his people is quite perverse. So we rightly condemn that in light of what the Bible has to say. However, Christians are not against pleasure. We're not against joy and delight because God has made us to feel pleasure and delight and joy. And frankly, that's what heaven will be like. Heaven will be just wonderful. You should spend some time thinking about the fact that heaven will be wonderful. It'll be just absolutely, stunningly glorious. And there are delights in this world. There are joys in this world. And, and all along the path, it's a hard path sometimes, but all along the path, our Father gives us times of great joy that encourage us and move us along. But they're all anticipatory of what comes in the future. And the afflictions of this life don't bear comparison with the joy that awaits us in the next world. There will be great joy and delight. The psalm makes that very clear. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. And so imagine this. This man, if he... If he remembered, if he knew that text and remembered that text, he would have understood that in a few, what, hours? How long would he live? And just in, before the day is through, he's going to be dead. He knew they were going to break their legs. That's what the Romans did. They didn't want to drag this out too long. They wanted it long enough to be a lesson. But... You know, they'd break the legs of these people so that they would die. He probably expected that, and so he knew he was going to die before the day is through. And now he knew that before the day is through, this suffering will be transformed into unspeakable, unimaginable joy. How did he feel when he heard, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And if you asked him, he would have said, oh, this is glorious. Maybe that's what he would have said. This is glorious. 
I am suffering unimaginably for now, but in a moment I will glory in the presence of God. Here's the glorious word that he heard. And this number seven is a sure word. We're only going to number ten, just so you know. We're not going to 36 or something, you know. So number seven, it's a sure word. And you will be with me in paradise. There's no question about this. Jesus doesn't say, well, if all things go well, you know, if things work out, you'll be with me in paradise. There's a, there's a certainty to it. And there's a certainty to your state. If you're a Christian, you're okay. You're fine. All will be well. Through the love of God, you're saying that all will be well. You'll get there. You'll be there. You'll see him. There's no question about that. Acts 2.21 Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He shall be. 1 John 5.12 He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. It's black and white terms, you see. You, you're a Christian. You have life. You're not a Christian. And you don't have life. It's crystal clear. There's a stark certainty to it. 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have life. I'm writing this to you. Look, you have life, and I'm writing to you so that you'll know that you have life. I don't want you to be caught up in all kinds of doubts. I don't want you to be tormented with uncertainty. I want you to lay your head on the pillow tonight knowing, well, I have life. And if I die in the middle of the night, I go to heaven. I'll wake up in glory. There's no two ways about it. There's tremendous certainty. And you see, it's wonderful, especially today, because we live in a world that doesn't think you can be certain about anything. I listened to it. I watched a documentary a few days ago, and the man who, about whom the, doc, the, the man the documentary focused on, he said, you know, I'm going to look back on my life. And he says, there's nothing we can be sure about. He says, I'm going to give you a perspective from my eyes, but, but there's just nothing absolute in this world, nothing we can be sure of. I said, you thought to myself, you poor man. You see, the Bible makes it very clear that we can be sure of a lot of things, especially we can be sure of Christ. We can be sure of salvation. We can be sure of glory. You can be sure of your destiny. You can be sure of this, that you're going to heaven. There are, there are a lot of things, you know, we can't be sure of. That. But the most important things in life you can be absolutely sure of. It's a sure word. Number eight, it's a personal word. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He's talking to this man. And he says, you'll be with me in paradise. I wonder if the Lord Jesus looked right at him and said that. And caught his eye. I don't know. But I wonder if he 
caught his eye and said, you, you know, you will be with me in paradise. Many times over the years, I've picked up the phone and I, I would hear a machine say, you've been chosen to go on a cruise. Or you've been chosen and you're going to win this prize. You, you've been chosen. Of course, it's a lie. And it's an empty promise. And that kind of episode that you experience too is a metaphor for the empty promises that the devil and the world give us. Yeah, but with the Lord Jesus, he says, you. He will die, as we know. He will rise from the dead. And then on that first Sunday, Mary will be there and Jesus will confront her with his presence and she, her eyes will be dimmed and he will say, Mary, and she'll see. Because, you know, the Bible says, and, and Paul writes, that the Lord knows those who are his. And at some point, I don't know what this man's name was, but Jesus does. At some point, he will have said his name, I'm sure. Lord knows his name. The Lord knows Mary's name. And the Lord knows your name. He knows your name. You will, you will hear from his lips, with his voice, your name pronounced. He knows you. And if you're a Christian, he's taking you to heaven to be with him. You, you are blessed. And then, number nine, it's a present word. That is, you know, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. I have trouble if I have two ice cream sandwiches. And I have them both there in my freezer. And I have one. And I think, oh, it's fantastic. Just fantastic. And then I hear from people that you should keep the other one till later. Because tomorrow you won't have one. And if you keep it, you will have one. And you can enjoy it tomorrow. And I think, if I eat it now, but I'll have enjoyed too right now. And I don't want to forgo that experience. And tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. So almost every time, unless certain people are watching, I'll have them both and love it and face the consequences come what may. Hope deferred makes the heart sick would be the verse I used to justify it. Well, you know, there's a sense in which the Lord doesn't defer this hope. There is a sense in which we do, there's the already and the not yet, and you know, we don't experience heaven right away. But what we do have is this, the Bible says, you have eternal life now. In 1 John 5, 13, 
I write this to you so that you may know that you have it. It's yours. It's not coming. It's not going to be given to you at some point down the line. You actually have it now. It's yours now. That word have is a, a, it's a verb that is in the present tense. It's active and it is indicative. It's something that is a reality for you now. The fullness of the experience will come later, but it's yours now. That's what Jesus is saying to this man. Today you'll be with me in paradise. What the rest of the Bible says to us in terms of our situation, not that we're experiencing glory now, but we have it now. It's not a present that in a month will be given to you. It's a present that you have. And if you're a Christian, were you to believe in Christ before this service is over, you would have life now. I write this to you so that you may know, you who believe in Jesus, that you have life now. The last thing I'll say is that it's a rare word. It's a rare promise. It's a rare declaration because you remember, maybe you, I hope you read the uh, bulletin. At the end, you will have seen the quote from Ryle that there is one deathbed conversion in the Bible so that no sinner might lose hope. Still hope for you. But there's only one so that no sinner might presume. You're not to say, well, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I'm 41, I've got you know, maybe 25 more years. You may not have 25 more minutes. So don't be presumptuous. You know. Don't think you have lots of time to, you know, get right with God. Begin at some point. I'll start to take this seriously. I mean, I believe it, but I, I've got a lot of living to do. You know, don't be foolish. Don't try and roll the dice with God. God's not to be trifled with. You gamble like that, you might lose in a desperate way. Death might come in a moment. And death might come in a way that, that you don't have time to think. You know, maybe you think, well, when I get old and I start to get sickly and I'm, I'm laying on my deathbed, I'm, you know, then I'll have, I'll have time to... But you may not. As a lady, some of us uh, remember with great fondness, you know, Miss Eloise and... Uh, she was at a family gathering and she started to choke on something. And I, I think it was her brother. Some of you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was her brother who did the Heimlich and basically saved her life. And because she was a godly woman, as she's recovering, she says to him, because he wasn't a Christian, she says to him, you see how quickly death can come leaving you no time for reflection. Don't put it off. And that's what I'm saying to you if you're not a Christian. Don't put this off. Don't delay. 
Oh, there's always hope while there's life and breath in us, but who knows when the end comes. So the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Come to the Lord Jesus today. What a wonderful thing, though. If today you do come, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. What a wonderful thing. If you, by the grace of God and through faith in Jesus today, you come to the same Jesus who saved him, and today find the same grace and experience the same forgiveness as he did. And one day, you'll be around the throne worshiping the same Jesus as he and us. Now, wouldn't that be wonderful? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how thankful we are for the Lord Jesus, the beautiful and glorious and wondrous Savior he is. Help us in a few moments now as we remember him in his death, in the way he ordained, help us so that uh, through what we've considered and through this ordinance, may he become ever more precious to us. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. We'll take our hymn books and turn to number 343, which leaves no uncertainty as to the purpose of it. It's the communion hymn, 343.
Please be seated. As we know, this is a, an ordinance of the Lord's people. For those who know and love Christ and are walking in obedience with Him, what a delight it is and a joy it is for us to celebrate the table of the Lord Jesus together. And we trust that all of you are watching. If you're not a Christian, I hope you see and learn and appreciate what it is. The glorious Savior we have, how we love Him. The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that at the Lord Jesus in the night when He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, I suppose we're to come and leave us in thanksgiving for the broken body of Christ. Our Heavenly Father, we are reminded that Christ came into the earth, he did say that sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for him, for him to come to take on flesh and blood, to be stricken and smitten, to be afflicted, and to hang on the tree to save his people from their sins. So we are very thankful for Christ. And even as we now partake of this emblem, this sign, this bread that represents his, his body, we are so thankful that through his sacrifice we can be saved. And, and Father, how we do look forward to the day when we will see him, when we will see him with our own eyes, when we will be with him. Be with him forever. Oh, help us now to be faithful to him. Even as we continue on, help us to serve him, help us to love him more. And may we indeed see more of Jesus every day. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is